Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to what, huh, you know, other than global uh, climate change going on, has to be one of the more beautiful uh, uh, falls we're, we're entering in here in Wisconsin. And you know what? That means Claire Zalke is with us, our Healthcare Director. Safe from her home in this time of surging COVID. Claire, it's good to see you. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to see you, too. Yeah, Claire, we're not going to talk about COVID this week because we have so many other things to, to talk about. But suffice it to say, the numbers continue to be uh, stark. Um, Robert Craig, Executive Director, is also with us. Robert, good to have you. Good day, everyone. So look, folks, we got a lot to talk about. We're going to be joined later in the show by Kirk Bankstad from the Manaqua Brewing Super PAC to talk about the federal lawsuits that he may be pursuing against school districts who are putting our kids' health at risk. We'll also be joined by Alex Lazary, who is running through the United States Senate later in the show. Very happy to have Alex talk to us and tell us about his campaign. But folks, we got to start talking about Build Back Better. We record Thursday mornings, so we do not have all the information. In fact, by the time you listen, more of this will be clear. But as of Thursday morning, there does not appear to be any kind of specific deal. President Biden appears to be engaging directly, finally, uh, in this. Uh, I would say some people might slightly critique. Uh, but we still have Manchinima, as Mark Pocan has taken to calling them, uh, not moving. And as Mark Pocan was saying this morning on CNN, seemed to be not telling us what they want and making it very challenging for negotiations. But folks, this has got to work out. There is no alternative. Tina, I think we have going here. Uh, but it looks like at this moment, we may not have a vote today. This may be pushed. We shall see the promised vote. Claire or Robert, I'm going to go to you first just because to get the, the lay of the land. Uh, and then Claire, uh, back to you after that for a discussion of where we're at with Build Back Better, Robert. And I'll do this little like NFL pregame because we're doing the pregame show here in, in some degree. And that is, okay, Thursday's supposed to be the big day. It's the deadline for the House vote. What's at stake? A first-term president at the beginning of his term when he has the most power trying to do the most sweeping reform since at least the 1960s, maybe the 1930s on things we desperately need. Needing all Democratic votes because of the nature of the Republican Party having a very slim majority and having some Democrats, a very small number, that are very conservative. Uh, two in the Senate we know of, uh, Manchinima, as, uh, as Representative Pocan says, and uh, a smaller number in the House. A media misling people in saying it's a, it's a fight between progressive and moderates. Most moderates are for the Build Back Better bill. That's the big bill. That's the 3.5 trillion. And it's only a small number there's a massive lobbying campaign going on. It'll probably end up being the biggest in American history by corporate America and the billionaire class. And that's who the small number of corporate Dem obstructionists are listening to. And then you have a progressive caucus in the House and a block in the Senate being stronger than we've seen since the 1960s, holding together and knowing that if they pass the smaller roads and bridges, bipartisan kind of uh, novelty bill, 
that was put together to prove bipartisanship works, which actually moves us backward on climate overall. Just for example, we make leader deadline, but does a few good things that some of our union friends like, but not nearly as much. 81% of the jobs are in the broader package, build back better. They know, they're right, that Manchin and Cinema and this small group of conservative uh, House Democrats are gonna not do the bigger package if we give them their little, their little treat, the, the roads and bridges bill. And that's the leverage. And the moderates are demanding to give up their leverage without giving the progressives do that without them giving up any of their leverage. But obviously, there's no action in Congress ever until there's a deadline. And Nancy Pelosi is holding to a Thursday deadline. Many people don't think she would put, actually have a vote that she will lose. But we do not know because, as Mark Pocan said, who's a real leader in the Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, and this is there's a Washington Post headline this morning that progressives extremely frustrated with Manchin Cinema. They're not saying what they're for. And then finally, I'll just say Biden is trying to do this like a senator. He's not arm twisting LBJ style. He's doing what he did to get Senate deals. He's listening and trying to get bottom lines without really being aggressive. We'll see if that works. If it works, it's brilliant. But he's been starting to be critiqued by House Democrats, progressives and moderates for not being clear where he is. Progressives are saying rightly so that the full package is the only one that achieves the president's entire agenda. But he's not really leaning into that. He's not doing it LBJ style. He's doing it consensus in the back rooms of the Senate parlor kind of way. Claire, your thoughts on where we stand? It's just such a mess is, is the headline of, of my thoughts. Um, look, I know that there's no hard and fast deadline to get this done, but I think in the bigger political context, the longer that this gets pushed out, the worse it is for the American people and the worse it is for the Democrats in particular, because um, it just allows more time to pass for folks to become increasingly entrenched, which is what has happened in recent weeks, it seems like. Um, and also, you know, the American people already don't have a very high opinion of Congress as a ability to get things done. Um, and, and this certainly is doing nothing to change that. Um, I think an interesting piece that's also happening, right, is that all of this is going down at the same time as uh, we need the government to pass a continuing resolution, a funding resolution, to avoid a government uh, shutdown, which hasn't happened in many years. And that uh, deadline, I, I think, is Thursday, the day we're taping at midnight. Um, so by the time this airs, we'll know if that happens or not. Um, I think it is not likely to happen. But another date to keep an eye on is October 18th, which is when the government would reach its borrowing limit. And uh, it's really important that uh, Republicans aren't able to uh, block the sort of um, the, the debt limit, uh, issue because we don't want to trigger a uh, you know self-imposed economic crisis around um, not being able to pay our bills on time. Um, but it's again as a piece of and not that I'm an economic expert, right? So I want to caveat all of this with Robert might come in and be like, "Claire, you're wrong on this topic," right? Okay, um, but okay, he's shaking his head. Whew, I didn't get that wrong. Great, but uh, oh, and it's also incredibly important because that might delay things like social security checks, um, the payment of the monthly child tax cre credits um, that parents have begun to rely on, especially as the pandemic uh, continues. 
Um, but it is another point that uh, Republicans in Congress can sort of use as leverage in this process. And I think um, that is that's dangerous and unfortunate to play with people's money like that. Uh, so overall, uh, my point is the further that this gets delayed, the more complicated I think it becomes and the more entwined I'm afraid it can get with other issues that Congress needs to deal with. Robert, I wanted to follow up on something that I'm hearing um, uh, really clearly from, from you, but others, right? This idea of the corporate media or media in general, right? Trying to portray this as progressives versus moderates when we really do have essentially corporatist Democrats. Uh, and I wanted to mention that as it relates to Kristen Cinema because she appears to be one of the key people right now and more problematic um, and Claire, you held a media event with um, Tammy Baldwin this week around prescription drugs and just this critical issue. Um, look, cinema is so knee deep into the prescription drug companies and the pharma money and all of that. Like, again, Robert, speaking to what you're talking about and, you know, you have Senator Baldwin impassionately, you know, trying to fight for this. Um, that's what's at stake here, right? This isn't some really truly about a price tag, even though that may be end up be part of the compromise, who knows? This is really about big pharma, big corporate interests standing in the way. Look, if they say what they're for, they're giving away their leverage. And I agree there, there's one Democrat who, who said this is a branding exercise by Manchin and Cinema. Well, that's catastrophic, but it's also, you're right, they're shilling. And it, it, the media also, with Beltway Kool-Aid, is describing it as a philosophical difference. It's not about that. That's why they won't say what they're for, because they'd have to say which interest they're kowtowing to. And uh, they'd lose leverage, but they want progressives to hand their leverage away. And for the first time in 40 years, they're not going to do it, thank God. And that gives us a much better chance of doing this. So it's also confounding. I heard Chuck Todd on Wednesday being confounded by the, by the progressives. You know, the Beltway media has been wrong this whole time. They said being the Biden presidency that the progressives are going to be a thorn in his side and be hostile to him and try to make him go further left. There has been a lockstep alliance between the progressives, the White House, Schumer, and Pelosi. It has been the smaller group of corporate Democrats, and they're still not reporting it that way, and they're making it philosophical, Matt, rather than talking about what's behind it. And that does a disservice as well, because if the public better understood who Manchin and Cinema are, are shilling for, they'd have less leverage. And so, you know what? Washington is corrupt in the sense that all of K Street runs on this money. It's the same money, the lobbying money, the PR money, the dark money for campaigns, often the same people switching hats during campaigns, and they depend on the same money, and candidates depend on it. And I heard one, uh, got a, a good reporter from the Cook Political Report say, kind of matter-of-factly, at least they were honest, well, you know, the progressive uh, members of Congress can raise a lot of small contributions and excited progressives around the country. The moderates can't do that, so they have to they have to depend upon the corporate interests. Now, what does that say oh, about yeah. those folks? Well, look, folks, uh, we're going to have to go to break. Before I do, uh, want to mention a report that 
was released this week by our national network People's Action, along with Demos, that underscores exactly what Robert is talking about. Underscores just how amazing, like just 20 corporations or groups representing a small amount of people can really control what's, what's in play uh, in, in Congress. And of course, this trickles down into our state and local governments. So folks want to encourage you, we'll put a link uh, uh, that report. It's on our Facebook page. We have it on social media uh, and want to encourage you to check it out. It's, uh, very good information about why we're struggling uh, to deal with these corporate Democrats. But with that, folks, we got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Kirk Bankstad from the Monaco Brewing Super PAC. Kirk's got some amazing things to talk about. He's been up to some good things. And with that, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are really happy to have a special guest with us. We are joined by Kirk Bankstead. Kirk is the founder of the Monaco Super PAC. Kirk, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Good to be here. Yeah, well, Kirk, we've had you on before. And the reason I asked you to come on is because, well, you have really touched a nerve with folks around uh, what's been happening in our schools around COVID mitigation, or shall we say the lack of it in many schools. Um, and you have uh, talked about how your PAC may be helping pursue federal lawsuits against school districts that are not doing anything really to mitigate uh, the spread of COVID and putting their kids at risk. Tell us more about this lawsuit, Kirk. Sure. So, um, you know, as part of as part of uh, my super PAC, we do a podcast every week and, um, you know, just as observing the news of Wisconsin, we're seeing COVID go through the roof. I think we're the, the second, you know, the state with the second most rise in cases. Um, and it's because we have uh, I think there's a concerted effort by conservative groups to infiltrate uh, school boards with things like critical race theory, but also like this crazy anti-masking freedom nut jobbery. And so like when we were doing our podcast and I, I was like, holy cow, this is happening everywhere outside of like rural, like urban areas like Madison and Milwaukee. It's happening everywhere else in Wisconsin and it's super dangerous. Uh, and, and so we put out a post uh, a, a week ago on the a face, on our Facebook page and said, if any parents have gotten COVID or their kids have gotten COVID or they have special needs kids that can't go to school because they're in danger because there's no mitigation efforts happening at school, reach out to us. We want to talk to you. We got flooded. Hundreds of parents uh, reached out to us. And, um, and so I talked to my lawyer, uh, Fred Melms, and I was like, dude, is there anything we can do? Uh, you know, because every, this is happening in so many districts. We can't just like, like, it's like whack-a-mole, you know, it's like happening all over. So like, and he, and he came out with this strategy where we could do a class action lawsuit against every school board. That's not, uh, you know, following the CDC guidelines that are not, uh, you know, forcing social distancing and masking among children that are too young to get vaccinated, which is the biggest issue here. And so, uh, you know, we think we can do it. He thinks he can do it. He's the lawyer. I'm just the hype man. <laughs> but like, he thinks uh, we're going to do two different districts. There's the Eastern and the Western Federal Judicial District in Wisconsin. And he's hoping that if we get a, a federal judge, 
It's less political. These guys hopefully are, are appointed for life. Uh, there might be a, uh, you know, a smart judge that cares about kids in Wisconsin that will do a temporary injunction until there's until we can get more evidence until the defense can you know gather a case he'll just say listen we're gonna throw we're gonna put masks on uh until we sort this out which hopefully will buy us a couple months of lower uh infection rates and then maybe the you know the uh fd fda will approve the vaccine for younger children in that time frame and then we can get those kids vaccinated so it's it's kind of a buying time tactic to, you know, to, to like try to deflect this crazy nut job, anti-mask horde that's over, overrunning Wisconsin school boards. Robert? Yeah, I first just wanna compliment you, Kirk, for this because too many of progressives kind of wring their hands and think there's nothing we can do and you've figured out something constructive to do from the position and, you know, you didn't just happen to have a super PAC. You created that because you were trying to figure out what to do in a bad situation. And we've had malfeasance on the part of elected officials. We know, I mean, it's well known on our side, all the Republicans that have essentially leaned into anti-vax hysteria for political purposes. But I think a lot of Democrats have been quite weak and timid about this and not used all their power which is, you know, literally killing people. But then I'm just stunned by the number of school administrators that have just given in to this. And in fact, haven't even used the COVID money that was designed that came from the federal government for them to make the schools safer because this is an airborne virus. So ventilation is everything. Very little has been done on that, for example. Not even the minimum of getting HEPA filter, air filters for every classroom, let alone upgrades to the buildings. They certainly could afford the latter, the former, they should do the latter. And so it seems to me in terms of law, it's always amazed me the origin of, you know, the whole civil process and common law, right, is very small damages, you know, your, your sheep grazed on my land kind of damages, right? And people sue all the time in businesses and others for relatively small damages, you would think that the amount of damage, the, the death and destruction that's caused by people violating the science and the basic public health directives and not wearing masks in enclosed settings, that's a much bigger harm than most any lawsuit you can imagine. So it is, it is weird that, that, it's hard, that it's even harder or you have to be radically, radically creative like you are to do this. But don't you think this is what, what civil law is supposed to be about? This is harming people and risking lives. And it's not just the people going into the buildings, it's the people in their households and their networks. If they're taking care of a elderly parent, she, he or she are now at risk, right? Yeah, I mean, there, it's like, it's like I, my brain just gets bored even talking about this because it's so freaking obvious. Uh, that what we have to do. And when you need to talk to anybody who's remotely intelligent, it's like, really, there's parents screaming at school board meetings about not masking their kids. And it's like, man, this is just ridiculous. And, uh, but it's as and, and every other country that's that's that every other country that has any sort of you know, financial center that's uh, not a third world country is is doing this the right way and has not made it political. We are the only country that's become a 
freaking banana republic of anti-science. And it's because it's politically motivated. It's meant to increase Republican Trump power. And it's it's infuriating. And I just want to crush it. You know, I want to crush it. And you're right. Democrats are too weak about have been too weak. We have to crush this. We have to actually fight. We have to roll around in the mud uh, with these people because because they're fighting dirty. And 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 so Democrats have to do more. We have to we have to punch. We have to punch hard. And so that's what I'm trying to do here. Claire. Thanks. Uh, I will echo what Robert said. I'm really excited uh, that you're taking this proactive and creative approach to addressing this issue. Uh, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about how you think this case might proceed. I know you said you're looking to go into the um, federal court path. Do you have any idea about, um, you know, timeline or are you kind of still in the phase of trying to get stories from parents? Uh, What's going on and what's next? Yeah. So we're going to, um, We've got two plaintiffs, uh, both in the western part of Wisconsin and the eastern part of Wisconsin, so we can so we can uh, do two lawsuits. Uh, we have to hire uh, expert epide- epidemiologists and infectious disease experts um, to listen to these plaintiffs and and understand what their scenarios are, and then write reports that will be that we will file in an, our initial complaint. Um, f- uh, my lawyer Fred Melms is. Uh, gather has gathered those reports. He's looking them over. We hope to file uh, as early as tomorrow, but probably on Monday. Um, uh, these these suits. We want to make sure that they're right, and you know, and that that we give ourselves as much uh, ability to not get them dismissed because of some stupid, you know, we didn't dot our i or cross our t or something like that. So, um, so we think we're going to introduce it next Monday, and um, it's, there's two areas. It's a public nuisance. He's taking that angle, um, and he's taking a civil rights angle. And it's uh, civil rights in terms of there's there's been a there's been this uh, handoff and like uh, this shaking of hands between public schools and kids last year when there, all these mitigation efforts were put into place. Uh, there's so that kind of contract has already been created, and so taking that away for no reason at all, other than you know pressure by crazies. It seemingly is a is is that contract has been violated. So we're, that's a that's a that's civil rights angle we're taking, and then we're taking this like public nuisance angle, which is like, you know, if you have a if you have a manufacturing plant that's putting out crap into the air in five different plants in you know in a state, um, you can sue or or a bunch of different you know polluters. You can sue them as a class because they're hurting people with this pollution, and so we. We feel like a public nuisance is basically this. There's a super spreader event happening every single day at every single one of these schools, which is a nuisance for the entire community because these kids go home and they have it. They might not die, but they're going to give it to their grandparents who might die. So that's uh, we're doing it from a public nuisance. And that's different than the cases that haven't won. Teachers suing schools don't win because the courts to say OSHA should be the agency that uh, handles that. So that's, uh, you know, we're taking a different angle because other cases haven't worked to mitigate this. Well, Kirk, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today and really appreciate your effort in this area. Want to give you, we've got, uh, got about a little under a minute left. If you've got any final words 
for our listeners, particularly if they want to get involved or reach out to you or be a part of this? Yeah, I mean, um, we've raised a lot of money already uh, for this. Uh, and so I don't really want to ask for more money uh, just because, you know, it's it's not about the money. It's about doing doing this thing. And I think we're going to be fine. Um, so I just, you know, it's I would say <laughs> listeners give money to you guys. You guys are the ones on the ground like we're. I'm doing this thing. Hopefully we win. Uh, but it's you guys are the organization. We're just the guys raising money uh, and giving it to people like you to to be the boots in the ground and to change Wisconsin. So I just would flip it right back to you guys and say, let's support Citizens Action. I can't argue with that. Kirk, thanks so much for your leadership. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks a lot with for that, having folks. me on. You appreciate, we appreciate it. Uh, with that though, folks, we got to take a break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are fortunate to have another United States Senate candidate with us. We have uh, been interviewing all of the main Democratic candidates because we think this race is super important. And so today we're lucky to have Alex Lazary with us. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we really appreciate it. We know uh, <laughs> the campaign, while early, is already very busy, so we appreciate your time. Um, just to start with, Alex, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and why you decided uh to, uh, to run in this United States Senate race. Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm Alex Lazary. I was the senior vice president uh, for the now NBA champion Milwaukee Bucks uh, before I jumped in. Woot, and, woot. Um, and look, I got into this race purely because I thought we needed a change in Washington. Um, I think when you look at the last 10 years, um, we've really only had one U.S. senator. And that's been a really big problem for us because, you know, whether it's his you know, indifference to the job, conspiracy theorizing or felty to Trump, you know, Ron Johnson has shown us that he's just not up to the task of being a United States senator. And so I wanted to run because I wanted to give Tammy a real partner in D.C. to bring some real change and real results for the people of Wisconsin. And I thought in that candidate, what we just needed was something different than what, you know, than, than what we typically have. You know, I'm not a politician, but I have worked in the highest levels of politics. Right. I worked in the Obama White House um, in the first term. Uh, I led the bid to bring the DNC convention here to Wisconsin. But we also have a real record of accomplishment that um, I think differentiates us from uh, everyone else in the field. You know, we don't just talk about things like a $15 minimum wage. We actually pay that. You know, we don't just talk about the need for unions. We actually have created thousands of good, un good paying union jobs. And we're the only campaign in this race, and I believe the country, to have a unionized campaign staff, right? So these are things that, that, that we don't just talk about. We, we live those values and we do it. You know, when it comes to climate change, you know, we, we've actually accomplished things. Um, you know, we, you know, showed that you didn't have to um, create this false choice between creating jobs and protecting the environment. And the same thing with racial justice, social justice, and voting rights. You know, we've been on the front lines. So, you know, I think what we've been trying to show with this campaign is that we can have someone who can go to Washington and actually get things done, because um, being a senator is a real job and it's an important job and it can have a real impact on people's lives. And the people who are in these offices uh, really matter. 
um, you can either have a positive impact, which I think we'd have, or a negative impact, which is what Ron Johnson has had. And so I think there's a really clear choice, um, not just in the primary, but in the general as well. Claire? Thanks. I think that was a great intro to your candidacy. Uh, and I'd like to talk about some issues now. Um, so if we haven't formally met in my capacity here at Citizen Action, I'm the healthcare director here, uh, officially the healthcare for all director, if that gives you a sense of where we're going. Um, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about where you stand on healthcare reform in this country. And for some context, um, Citizen Action's sort of top priority and goal for healthcare reforms is eliminating our for-profit health healthcare industry in this country, um, at least health insurance industry in particular, um, and moving towards a Medicare for all system. Although we support stepping stones along the way, like really robust public options that would sort of force bad acting private insurance companies out of the market. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you stand on healthcare reforms and in particular, the question of uh, Medicare for all. Yeah, look, I think the most important thing, and I think the biggest policy objective that we all agree with, is that we that that everyone deserves to have health care and affordable health care. No one should go bankrupt because they get sick. No one should be choosing between their 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 health and safety um, and being able to pay like worry about being able to pay medical bills. Uh, it's immoral. Uh, it's bad economics. Um, and so I think when we think about the, um, the overall policy objective is how do we get everyone healthcare as, as quickly um, as possible? And that's why I've been for um, a public option, um, a, robust, a, rob a robust public option uh, in, in the same way that, you know, I think you just talked about, you know, a, a Medicare for all who want it. Um, I think that is going to be the quickest way to get to universal healthcare. Um, and look, and then we'll see what kind of the market says there, right? Either everyone will end up going to Medicare and say that they love it, or people will, um, you know, have that choice. And I think that's something that's, that's important, especially as, you know, we're trying to figure out how can we get to a universal healthcare system as quick as possible. I think what we also need to do, and we're seeing this in the Build Back Better plan, is there are some real concrete steps we can take um, towards having a, a, a much more um, stronger healthcare system, I think, in the interim before we even, you know, are, are getting to a public option. You know, I love what Bernie Sanders is proposing um, on the expansion of, uh, of putting, you know, health, uh, vision and dental insurance um, and expanding that. Uh, I love the idea of us being able to negotiate drug prices um, to lower the cost of prescription drugs. And quite frankly, the federal government should tell the state of Wisconsin that they have to expand Badger Care. Um, I think these are all things that we, you know, can do in, you know, in this reconciliation bill um, or in this Build Back Better bill that can move our healthcare system forward. But I think if we're talking about universal healthcare, I think a public option is going to be the quickest way that we can get there. Um, and you know, I, I think a Medicare for all who want it um, is is a great policy option that gets us to the objective, which is healthcare for everyone. Yeah, and I appreciate uh, what you've said to us in private conversations about a robust public option, um, Alex, because public option is a word that's popular, but there's a broad range of meaning. Like the public option that was left at the end of the ACA fight in, to, in 2010 wasn't worth having, but there are robust ones that 
basically make health insurance completely change their model or go out of business and compete really with Medicare. And so the more you say that in a campaign, the better from our perspective. We do look very carefully about how people talk about issues. But I know you understand the difference in the two public options uh, and, and that whole range. But my question is, you know, I think when, when people select the senator, they know they can't be in Washington. They don't they're to live their lives, make a living, take care of their kids or their elders. And uh, they, they want to elect someone who they think will act the way they would like someone to if they had the time to actually be there and dig in. And we feel like that we're to, we're to I know you don't like the filibuster, and we feel like we're at a period where the Senate's already not majoritarian. Adding the filibuster makes it ridiculous and impossible to do what needs to get done on climate, health care, the economy, anything, uh, economic equality, racial, structural racism. Um, I'm wondering, uh, this is sort of the what kind of senator will you, will you be question, and there are a lot of ways to think about that, like who will you be similar to in the Senate? You see in Bill Beck better that you have some senators, uh, Bernie Sanders, Lewis Warren, applauding the unity of the, of the House Progressive Caucus in, uh, in, in holding firm that the moderates, the, the, the small group of conservatives blocking it, most moderates are for Build Back Better, um, have to actually agree to the contours of the, of the full package before they'll sign off on their little vanity uh, bill, the uh, Belt Roads and Bridges bill that is bipartisan. Um, but does but actually does a few decent things, but also takes us in some wrong directions too. You mentioned labor. We we like the way you promoted labor unions, my and the and public and and Medicaid expansion. My question is, um, you can compare yourself to a senator, and this might take to the next segment because we we're not at the end, but we're getting a little close to the end, like three minutes. And that is maybe it's around an issue like we can't really build labor unions around the Pro Act, right? And the filibuster prevents that, though it could potentially pass otherwise. It'd be close. And same with uh, Medicaid expansion. Build Back Better includes a workaround that would expand Medicaid in Wisconsin and cover 90,000 more people. Would you perhaps think about, this is just one idea, I'm just trying to prime you. you, you'd say it your own way, filibustering things that matter to the small group of conservative Democrats keeping the filibuster in place until they move on the filibuster so we can actually move on big issues like labor law reform or Medicaid expansion, everything else, climate, where we have a now an eight-year deadline to actually cut emissions in half. I mean, look, I, th I think you said it best, right? Like the, the filibuster is just, it is a way for politicians to not have to take responsibility for actually being in office um, and for actually having to take votes. And we see this time and time again. You know, politicians, and this is one of the things voters, I think, are getting so frustrated with. Every election cycle, you know, a, a politician comes around and says, hey, uh, I want to do this. And if you give me your vote, we'll get this done. And then the next time they're up, they say, hey, I'm sorry, I couldn't get that done because of these arcane rules in the Senate. But at the end of the day, voters are just saying, hey, you told me you were going to get this done. And why haven't you? And what we need to do is actually force our Congress to take responsibility and do their job, which is take votes, whether they're tough votes or not, you have to take votes. The voters put you in office to get things done. And I think if you get rid of the filibuster, um, it will actually start to hold politicians accountable for what they were voted in to do. And look, at the end of the day, if voters don't like what you did, they vote you out in the next election. But at the very least, what I would say 
is I would rather, you know, when I'm in the Senate, I, I don't want to, you know, be there to not do anything. I want to get results done. Um, that is the whole point of that job, because I've seen up close from my work on the Hill and in the Obama administration, um, what government can do and how good it can be and meaningfully changing people's lives. Uh, and that's why I think getting rid of a filibuster to actually accomplish the goals that the voters put us in office to do um, is, is so important. With that, we have got to take our break. We'll be right back after these short messages with Alex Lazary. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are talking with Alex Lazary. Alex is running for the United States Senate. Robert, you had a quick follow-up question. Yeah, and I know you're against the filibuster, right? I, at least 90% of Senate Democrats are, maybe more, maybe everyone all but two. I guess my question is, you're a senator. How do you make sure we get rid of the filibuster? And so my proposition was, you got to filibuster some things that Mansion and Cinema, for example, they're the two obvious, but there may be others, want. And maybe there's other ways to do it and really grind things down because we have year after year, most Democrats want to get rid of it. Here we are, full power, not getting rid of it, not doing what we need to do, not doing immigration reform, not doing labor law reform, not doing democ, not protecting voting rights. Because of this arcane filibuster that uh, guarantees minority rule, not intended by the founders. So I guess that's my question is, what do you do to change things? Being against the filibuster doesn't change the filibuster if you're a U.S. senator on the Democratic side. Well, I think it's winning elections, right? So we need to expand our majorities to be able to get rid of the filibuster. You know, I'm not going to tell, uh, you know, a Joe Manchin how he needs to appeal to, you know, the voters of West Virginia. Um, you know, if it's not for Joe Manchin, um, quite frankly, we don't have a Democratic majority, right? That is a seat that would go to the most MAGA of MAGA people um, in West Virginia. So what we actually need to do, and if we want to look at why we you know, haven't been able to get rid of the filibuster, why we can't pass this Build Back Better plan, just look at the seats in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. Um, those are seats that we can win if we come out and vote. And those are all people who are all on the record saying, if elected to the Senate, um, I would get rid of the filibuster. So we have to just make sure that we actually come out and win the elections and win the seats that we can win. These are states, you know, North Carolina was close, but Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are states. Joe Biden won. We cannot lose those Senate seats in, the, in 2022 if we want any chance of being able to do the things that, that we've said. So, you know, I think the biggest thing that we can do, honestly, is is win these elections, because I think if we do expand our majorities, we will be able to get rid of the filibuster and continue to pass the reforms that um, the voters put us in office to do. Claire? Thanks. Um, so speaking of Build Back Better, um, and you touched on the healthcare policies in Build Back Better that we support, <clears throat> um, a big part of the bill is actually being able to needing to be able to pay for those investments. And a big way that the bill does that is through tax reform, specifically for um, tax reform in uh, increasing tax rates for corporations, um, international tax rates and tax rates for, for the ultra wealthy in our country. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about where um, you stand on those provisions, um, because I, I also kind of own tax reform policy for this organization. Um, and I'm a little bit of a nerd and I love talking about it. <laughs> well, look, I think, you know, and we've constantly said, and I think I think that the, the policy debate's already been won on this, is of course the wealthy should be paying their fair share. 
And there is no corporation, I think, in the country that should be paying zero in taxes, right? I think that, you know, I love the idea of not only a global minimum tax, um, but, but a minimum tax um, for companies here in the U.S. But what we've said is we want to focus on how are we going to raise wages? How are we going to bring people up into the middle class? How do we make sure that um, people, you know, someone making seven bucks an hour is now going to make $15 an hour and how someone making $15 an hour is going to make 20, 25, 30. And how do we bring more jobs to this country? And so one of the proposals that we've made is, look, if you get rid of the Trump tax cuts, um, actually let's use then tax reform to incentivize corporations and businesses to do the things that we want. You know, let's give, if, if, you know, if we want to incentivize that, let's offer, uh, you know, a tax deduction if you pay your workers $25, $30 an hour. Let's offer a tax deduction for companies that allow their organizations to unionize. Let's offer a tax deduction for companies and small businesses that actually invest in the United States. So if you bring your operations, your manufacturing and supply chain operations back to the United States and create those jobs, um, that's something that I think will not only spur economic growth that will help pay for everything, um, but will also bring more people up into the middle class, um, which I think is, is one of the most important things that, that we need to do. I don't think us as a party talk enough about how we are going to um, help small businesses and help raise wages. Um, and that's why we've been talking about that the most. And that's why we've been talking about things like the PRO Act and how do we incentivize um, that kind of behavior. Robert? You know, prescription drugs is a huge issue, right? Uh, we have a system based on price gouging, though I like in all of their huge ad campaigns, they offer to help you if you can't afford their medications when they're charging you five times more than what any other advanced industrial country charges their consumers. And we paid for the research, right? And have had a horrible disinformation campaign against the simple move of letting Medicare negotiate the prices, which is an obvious, literally price fixing that that's prohibited, right? That was done when Medicare Part B was created under uh, the second Bush president presidency. Um, there's, you can also get a lot bolder if you think about their business model, right? They've protected their, their uh, monopoly, their public monopolies through trade policy, through the power of the United States since the 1980s, which is denying people the vaccine, right? And are trying to block suspending those uh, licenses so we can cheaply manufacture vaccine all over the world, which is in our interest because we're not only killing people in the third world, it is generating mutations that are going to harm all of us. Um, and then, of course, just getting to the bottom of prices and making this reflect, making the cost be a fair price, right, based on the actual cost of research and a fair profit, right? I mean, you as the former Bucks president, I assume you want a fair profit, not, you know, 90% profit, right? There's a, there, there's a certain level that's just extortion, particularly if you're given a public grad monopoly. You know, some of the advanced theory, we had a really interesting conversation on Biogram Wisconsin with Sarah Godalewski about this, is to really look at their patents and to limit their, 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 their monopolies when we get these practices, when they, when they charge excessive rates, when they charge a rate where, you know, when insulin, no new research on insulin, and we have diabetics, lots of them losing their lives or having huge health incidents because insulin is many times more expensive than it ought to be. No new breakthroughs, insulin has been insulin a long time. So are you open to thinking about 
even more fundamentally, you know, the, 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 the terms of the publicly grabbed monopoly and, and asserting the government to go after those monopolies by limiting their patents or creating an ability to suspend or eliminate them when you have this level of malfeasance by, by big pharma? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm definitely open to, you know, anything that can help lower the price of prescription drugs um, and help make that more affordable for everyone, uh, especially as you said, you know, I think in almost any patent, right, if no new innovation or, or anything in the public good um, is, uh, is advanced um, in that. Um, it eventually becomes, um, you know, uh, it, it, it becomes more readily available um, and the patent um, kind of expires. And so I think that's something that, you know, we should definitely be open to. Um, but again, I'm open to anything that can help not only stop the innovation that happens um, in our healthcare industry, but that will help lower the, you know, cost of prescription drugs for people so that, you know, they can have access to a lot of these pretty basic life-saving drugs um, that, that people need. Claire? Thanks. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit um, and ask you a slightly different question. And um, I want to preface this, but like this is coming from a place of extreme kindness and love for my state. And I want to give you a last opportunity before we break to sort of make your case why you're the best person to represent um, the people of Wisconsin. Um, so I think people in the Midwest are aware that very often folks from other parts of the country can view us as flyover states and less interesting or sort of cultured places, and that often politicians and elected leaders, when they're campaigning nationally, can view um, states in the Midwest like Wisconsin as, you know, people whose votes exist to um, kind of just be resources for their for their gain. And I think um, it's possible that your candidacy as somebody who came here um, from the East Coast, uh, what, seven or so years ago, could be sort of viewed in line with that lens if somebody weren't being gracious. And so my question is, how would you respond to somebody who might, um, you know, chafe against being uh, represented by somebody who moved to the state, like I said, seven to 10 years ago? And, and I think this is generally, I want you to make the case for us why, you know, you think you're the best person to represent the, the people of Wisconsin. And, I, and I'm hoping this will be a positive note to, to sort of end, end this interview. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting. You know, when, when we're out on the campaign trail, we, we don't hear people talking about where someone was born. Right. Like every people know, you know, I didn't have a choice in where I was born. Um, you know, that was uh, that, that was my parents call. Um, but when I had a choice of where to live, um, I chose Wisconsin. Um, and when I had a choice of what community I wanted to be a part of, where I want my daughter to grow up and what community for her to be a part of, you know, we chose Wisconsin. And, you know, I think what we want is for people to move here, for people to be part of the community and feel that, you know, this is, and, and say like, yeah, like, you know, when someone asks me where I'm from, I say Milwaukee and I say Milwaukee proudly. Um, there was a reason, you know, I wanted to lead the bid to bring the DNC convention to Wisconsin because I wanted the world to see what we all know about Wisconsin, which is that this is one of the greatest states and that it's not this, you know, best kept secret in the Midwest, um, but that we can actually out Wisconsin as, this great place to live, work, and play. Um, and I think people got a little taste of that um, during the, the slightly altered convention that we had uh, in, in 2020, but I think they got a big taste of it um, during the NBA championship run. And this is all that we're trying to do. And, and what I wanna do in the US Senate to represent the people of Wisconsin um, 
is is do exactly what we've done, um, you know, with the Bucks and and in my role outside the Bucks, which is do what's best for the state, um, what's best for the community, and and continue the work that we've actually done. Uh, and again, I think that's what you know separates you know me from anyone else, right? I'd rather someone, uh, you know, who who's had real experience and real accomplishments in the community being able to go to Washington and do that exact same thing um, rather than, you know, people whose either only qualification is running for office or, you know, um, you know, just fighting partisan fights um, in, in, uh, in, while in office. I think it's more important to have people who have actually had a record of accomplishment in bringing people together to get things done. Uh, and that's, you know, what we're going to go to Washington to do. And with that, we really appreciate you taking the time. I'll, I'll just say in accordance to what you said, uh, anyone who's been to the serve, it is a uniquely city of Milwaukee, Milwaukee uh, space in a way that the Bradley Center wasn't uh, speaking to what you just said. Uh, when you go in there, you realize you're in the city of Milwaukee and I, it, it was uh, struck by that. But anyways, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to join us today and uh, tell us more about your campaign. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for having me. Really appreciated being here. Excellent. And with that, folks, we have got to wrap up this show. We really appreciate our, our guest today, which, of course, includes Alex Lazary, but also Kirk Bankstead uh, from the Minocqua Brewing Super Pack. And with that, folks, we'll see you all next week at Battleground, Wisconsin. <laughs>